Hi, George Lavender here. Just a reminder that if you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us by going to radioproject.org and clicking on the big donate button. And if you haven't done so already, you can also rate us on iTunes, which helps other listeners find us. Thanks a lot. Here's the show. I'm Laura Flynn, and this is Making Contact. I did substitute teaching whenever I was called. I picked up books from the town dump and sold them on Half.com. I brokered parts for, um, auto parts for a friend on eBay. I did freelance writing, and I did tax work in tax season. I didn't know what else I could do. The slump in the economy had hurt me like hurt so many others. That's Gail Ruggles testifying in front of Congress in 2011 about trying to support her family during the Great Recession. From 2007 to 2009, millions of people like Ruggles lost their jobs and hustled to survive. Since then, 8 million jobs have come back, but people aren't necessarily earning more. And many simply can't find a full-time job. On this edition of Making Contact, we'll hear from a panel of labor experts on what part-time employment looks like for many today. The panelists include former New York Times labor reporter Stephen Greenhouse, Ann Boger, Director of Government Affairs and Public Policy for the Freelancers Union, Sade Gabersolasi, Senior Staff Attorney for the National Employment Law Project, and Rick McGahey, the first voice you'll hear. He's a professor at the New School for Public Engagement. The moderator is David Gray, Senior Fellow at New America. So I want to, I want to give you a, a pithy quote from a really smart economist. He said, the outstanding fault of the economic society in which we live are two. That's its failure to provide for full employment and its arbitrary and inequitable distribution of wealth and incomes. That's a smart economist, right? That's John Maynard Keynes almost 80 years ago in the general theory. We are now 70 months into the recovery. The average post-World War II recovery is about 48 months. We're way past the, uh, the peak date of what we would think would still be good, but we, it took us six and a half years to get the jobs back that we lost in the recession just to get the same number of jobs back. We have not much demand, uh, and you see it reflected in the unemployment numbers. Uh, you see it reflected in our historically low labor force participation. That's everyone who's either got a job or looking for a job. It's the lowest it's been since 1978, flattened out. There, that's not all demand-driven, but that's a big piece of the story. Thinking about the part-time workforce, and the question, uh, perhaps, does, does everybody, uh, should everybody, is everyone destined to have a full-time job? Does everyone need a full-time job? Or are some of the shifts uh, in, in, in personal entrepreneurship, so to speak, as it comes, um, as it relates to job, uh, a good thing for some workers? Um, uh, how does that interplay uh, affect uh, both individuals and the economy generally of uh, the pros and cons of, of part-time work? Would you? Sure. The increase in part-time work when looked at just in comparison to full-time numbers maybe isn't telling the whole story because um, we see an increasing rise in the number of people who identify as freelancers or people who work in independent and alternative modes, which might mean having a part-time job and three other things that they do at the same time. It might mean having a full-time job that's still not making ends meet, and so you're moonlighting on top of that, maybe hoping to turn that into something that can become your career, maybe maybe just adding to the income that you you need. Um, And so to look only at part-time versus full-time to me, misses some of the story because what we're seeing is that the era of sort of big work or the, uh, and manufacturing kind of jobs have 
shifted away to kinds of work that can be done in many different structured ways. Some of that is being an employee, maybe short term, maybe part time, and others may work just as well as an independent contractor or uh, as a micro business. And one of the things that's really interesting, you know, Freelancers Union um, represents members and independent workers across many, many different fields. And one of the things we see is a lot of folks who we've kind of described as diversified workers, meaning that they're not just an employee or just a small business owner, but they actually um, are getting revenue from many different kinds of work simultaneously. Sometimes because uh, that's the work that's available and sometimes because they um, are able through those different types of work that they're doing to diversify their income stream, in some cases feeling more secure having that diversity than they would with one full-time job that could be gone at a moment's notice. So they, let me ask you if you've noticed uh, that, that as an economy we are, are, are shifting uh, more towards uh, low wage or subcontracting or, or precarious work uh, generally. Like, like Anne said, it's not a monolithic workforce and one would think looking at you know the stories and just everything that we read about part-time workers over the last couple of years that you know the rates of involuntary part-time work people that want full-time hours but can't get them have increased but in fact if you look over time the rate of involuntary part-time work has actually been fairly stable except for you know periods of recession what is changing and i think what why there is so much focus on involuntary part-time and the problem of part-time workers is that people are starting to look at what are the conditions that part-time workers are experiencing and are those conditions changing? And so that's where we're seeing a lot of the organizing and the policy solutions. So for example, where are rates of involuntary part-time much higher? And so we see that while overall in the workforce, the rate of involuntary part-time is 5%, in the retail industry, it's 9%. So it's almost double. We see it higher among African-Americans, Latinos, women, you know, people are looking at, well, is is the penalty worse for working part-time? You know, we have always had this part-time parity issue where, you know, you work the same job, but if you work part-time, you get less hourly pay for doing the same work. You, you don't have access to benefits. Is that changing? And then I think the last thing is, is it more precarious to be a part-time worker? You know, so the just-in-time scheduling issues that we've been reading about that, you know, St Steve has written about, um, you know, the, the on-call shifts and not knowing what your schedule is, are those things increasing? And so, Looking at that, people are saying, yes, actually, it's harder to be a part-time worker than it was you know, decades ago. It's not just about wages, right? Because what good is a $20 an hour minimum wage if you only have five hours of work a week? And so I think that type of linking together is what's prompting some of the organizing around not just wages, but hours. Thank you, Sudea. If I, Stephen, could turn to you, and, and uh, since since today's is, is linked uh, uh, to one of uh, some of your articles, you know why has has scheduling, uh, you know, volatile scheduling, become so popular, and, and and the interplay between employer and employee decisions as it impacts part-time worker. Part-time work is a mixed bag. A lot of people are happy to do part-time work, but you saw about what two-thirds, three-quarters of part-time workers, you know, voluntary, and about one-third are involuntary. But I think what we're seeing. In, in part-time work is it's become far more irregular. And I think even for, for voluntary part-timers, there are more mm -hmm. complaints about how they're being treated. And we're seeing more workers who might work 25 hours one week and 10 hours the next week and 30 hours the next week and five hours the next week. And that makes life hell because it's extremely hard 
to plan your finances. It's extremely hard to plan childcare. It's, and, and my sense is this grows out of two, maybe three trends. One is you know, there's this far more sophisticated software. So a, a store with maybe 200 workers might say, well, we need you know, 50 workers on that shift. And you know, uh, you know, Jamie knows how to do the forklift. And these three are great as cashiers. And this person knows you know, how to stock beauty aids. And they, you know, for a manager without a computer, it's very hard to do that you know, by, by, you know, by, to pencil it all in. And now they have this very sophisticated software that does it all for you and, and, and spits it out. And a big change in recent years is that uh, a lot of retailers and, and, and restaurateurs are trying to tie much more closely the amount of sales per hour with how many workers they need per hour. So uh, I, I wrote about this uh, uh, worker in, in Milwaukee who worked at Popeyes. And she, Mary Coleman, um, I think she's about 60, 65 years old, she took bus an hour to go to work. She shows up at a Popeye's, you know, she paid the bus fare and she gets there and her boss says, sorry, we don't need you today. You know, business is slow. So, she, you know, so she just has to turn around and head home without any pay. And, and I, so on one hand, we have this effort to more closely tie the amount of labor needed with, with you know, how sales are going. And the other trend is basically unions are growing weaker Worker voice, so to speak, is growing weaker. And companies, I think, feel more freedom to schedule workers however they want. So we see these, some really egregious practices, like you know, some businesses consistently give workers only two days advance notice of their schedule for the next week. Or you know, um, I, I interviewed this worker here in New York uh, who said she was scheduled one regular workday a week and she had to, you know, wake up in the morning and call. She was on call the four other days and she had to call up first thing in the morning to see whether they wanted her. Let's stay with this. I have other questions are coming to mind too, but I see nodding heads from other panelists. And just let's stay with the scheduling uh, question just to see if, if anyone else wants to jump in and talk at all about um, anything that comes to mind uh, on the issue of scheduling for, um, for part-time workers. Rick? I think the software probably is accelerating it quite a bit, but people know the phrase just-in-time inventory. Yeah. I mean, firms for years have been pushing logistics to do this this way. They don't want to carry big stocks of parts, but we'll get them to you the next day. Uh, and so computers, they first did it with physical stuff inventory, and now they're doing it with people. There's always been attempts to control how to minimize the amount of labor from the firm's standpoint. And it doesn't mean they're bad awful people they may be but it's just the firm wants to minimize its cost right so it's trying to get as few trying to pay as few workers for as much revenue as it can get so i think it's hard for us to think of ourselves or workers as inventory but uh from the point of view of the firm it is in in, in one of the wage stuff lawsuits against mcdonald's out of california some workers said that you know during the breakfast hour if business was slower than anticipated they'd tell one or two workers Clock out, we no longer need you because the ratio mm -hmm. of sales to number of employees justifies your clocking out. Mm -hmm. But don't leave the building, you know, sit around twiddling your thumbs yeah. Yeah. Don't get paid, yeah. for two hours. Yeah. And then when things get busy again around lunchtime, then they allow you to come back on. They tried this in Las Vegas, but the Las Vegas, at least the big hotels, the workers are unionized and they couldn't do it. They'll, they'll take another run at it. But uh, I mean, if you're an individual trying to cope with this stuff, you're in bad shape, right? It's just very hard. For, there is particularly with this slack labor market, there's always someone else they can get to come in uh, for you, so you're threatened by it. Yeah. 
let's, let's build on that. Were you going to jump in? Well, I was going to say the, the example that Steve gave yeah. of the workers that are told, like, just go out and wait in the parking lot, and when business gets faster, we'll bring you back in. There are, you know, there are a lot of states. Where, so California is a great place because, well, California has decent laws on the, on the issue, but I think the problem and one of the things that some of the campaigns are trying to address, you know, to deal with these issues is that a lot of, you know, so in New York, for example, if you're called into a retail store and, or into a store and you go in and they say, actually, we don't need you, um, and they send you home, you're actually entitled to four hours pay at the minimum wage, even if you didn't work those hours. It's called a reporting to work requirement. A few states have it. It's not great and it's rarely enforced, but it's meant to address the situation where your employer requires you to be available to work and just doesn't pay you because you have made you don't. You have changed your life around. You've maybe arranged for childcare. You've foregone a second job. You've changed your classes. And so that recognizes that. The problem is that we're in the 21st century where an employer can get in touch with you through email, through text, so many different ways. And so they can say, look, we never asked you to report to work. We called you and said that you didn't need to come in. But you're like, well, I still made the same thing. I still rearranged childcare. I still foregone a second job. I still you know, didn't go to school that day. And so it's the same effect. And so one of the things that some of these campaigns that are really popping up and are really exciting are trying to deal with is how do we change these, you know, somewhat antiquated reporting pay laws to deal with the 21st century economy and the way that employers now typically relate to their workers. You're listening to a panel discussion about the state of labor conditions for part-time workers presented by New America NYC on May 20th, 2015. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. Because of generous support from listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the US, Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to download shows or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. You know, we've been talking about what some people call volatile schedule, on-call schedule, erratic schedule, herky-jerky schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Carrie Gleason, who was founder of this group, Retail Action Project, and now we're at the Center for uh, Popular Democracy, says what's going on is that employers, rather than you know, bearing the burden of having too many workers in a slack period in the afternoon, now you know, shift the risk, shift the burden on, onto, onto the workers. And that's true. Mm-hmm. Carrie, at the Retail Action Project, uh, you know, did this big study that showed that what, you know, 50% of New York City retail workers work part-time. Only 10% of those say that their work schedules are, are consistent week to week. And you know, between some of the stories you know, we wrote in the New York Times and my colleague Jody Cantor wrote this amazing story about this you know, part-time worker at, at the uh, Starbucks Sorry. down in San Diego, where one, like one July 3rd, she had to work till like 11 p.m., and then she had to be mm-hmm. back the next morning at 4 a.m. Clopening. Clopening. So there's been this movement now that, that's pushing back. And now we're seeing things like you know, the San Francisco uh, Retail Workers Bill of Rights, which, said, which requires two weeks advance notice uh, for, for your schedule. And if, the, if your employer changes your schedule with less than a week notice, they have to pay you an hour. And with less than 24 hours notice, they have to pay you an extra two hours. So there is this pushback. Fight for 15. There's this big movement to achieve $15. Another big issue, one that you're working very hard on, is David is paid sick days. And I think now we're seeing this uh, 
uh, Fair Work Week, you know, Fair Work Week uh, is now coming on. It's like a third big worker issue that's being pushed across the country. I do think people are pointing out what else is going on, and it's using the ballot box. It's using laws, both to attempt to get enforcement and to pass new laws. I don't think it's accidental, actually, that it's in cities where this is happening. The federal government's not able to enforce much of this. That historically, uh, regulation and, uh, of a lot of these laws has fallen to the states. Most state governments don't want to do it. And so I think the place where actually you're going to see, where you're seeing it now, uh, and where you're going to see more of it is, is cities. I think that's the way where we're going to get this experimentation, whether it's minimum wage. All the things that folks have talked about have been broader kind of urban organizing things. I think it's right that we're focusing particularly on the marginal, low-paid workers, but uh, Professor Lambert or myself are in an industry. I was looking at what industries have lots of part-time workers, and it's construction, and it's agriculture, and it's, I want to make sure I get the numbers right, uh, over 50% of all university faculty now yeah. hold part-time appointments. Um, and yeah. non-tenure track jobs, which can be full-time, but most of them aren't, are now over 75% of all appointments in American higher education are non-tenure track. I mean, yeah. so that, and that, so this is now, on, on, on the, I'm kind of arguing against myself, this is like, this is really spreading in lots of different industries uh, in this way. And then I think yeah. back to Anne's point, like, rather than thinking only as a problem of the McDonald's workers and that, it's, it's our problem too. Well, on the university faculty work, I mean, the last uh, fight for 15 strikes that happened on April 15th, you saw adjunct faculty join, and it was because, you know, I think the average uh, pay that you get per course is something like $2,700 per course, and you're doing three or four courses maybe, and Berkeley put out a study saying that a fourth of adjunct faculty have to rely on public assistance to make ends meet, which is a fourth, yeah, and, and you know, these are folks with MAs and PhDs that probably have enormous student debt, which is a whole other issue. Um, when those first, you know, 150, 200 workers went on strike November 2012 in New York City, and they were saying $15 an hour and the union, and I, and I don't want to forget the union part, but when they were saying $15 an hour, people were like, that is crazy. Mm -hmm. That work isn't worth $15 an hour. It's never going to happen, like, you know, whatever. And it is actually happening, and I, and I you know, even like liberals were saying that, and and I think um, I absolutely agree that cities are the place where this is going to happen. And too bad more cities don't have the power to do it. There are actually very few states that allow mm -hmm. cities yes. to raise the minimum right. wage on and their own. And they're cutting away those powers. And the they're cutting away those. Away those exactly. And that's like one of the secret right wing things that nobody's talking about, but is a real threat to progressive politics and democracy. As you're saying, you know, so unions have grown much weaker. And Washington really is paralyzed. And we're seeing. Uh, Seattle, San Francisco, uh, LA now passed the $15 minimum wage. As you're saying, with the $15 fight, at first people thought, two and a half years ago, they thought, this is pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. But they, they wanted to create a serious discussion about it. And although people yeah. thought it was you know, a, a, you know, eight bridges too far at yeah. first, now you know, whoever thought LA would, would pass this so quickly. And I think there's the same uh, effort now with issues like uh, you know, having states and cities require businesses to you know, create, give two or three weeks advance notice on mm -hmm. scheduling. So I, when I was researching this story the other day, you know, a few months ago about uh, clopenings, and, and you know, all these people say, said, isn't there a law that prohibits employers from having you work until midnight and requiring you to come back at 7 a.m.? Mm -hmm. And there are virtually no laws. I mean, mm -hmm. I, then I discovered that the European Union has a 
directive that basically requires workers have 11 hours between shifts. So like if you work till midnight mm -hmm. at your restaurant, you don't have to come back till 11 a.m. Mm -hmm. And the European Union also has this directive that you know, part-time workers have to be paid basically at the same rate mm -hmm. at, as full-time workers. Mm -hmm. Just because you're part-time doesn't mean that they can pay you less per hour. Yeah. Freelancers Union looks at independent workers, which includes those who, um, some of whom fall into the part-time category and some who might not. Um, and we estimate that there are about 53 million Americans who freelance. And uh, across many, many industries, and many of them being adjuncts and the like, just as you pointed out, and um, couldn't agree more with, with the comment that uh, when you begin to bring those kinds of numbers together, the change that you can make um, by raising awareness within the political spectrum and with, with, uh, with local government especially to begin to even understand what this workforce means. So from a, uh, from a trend standpoint, if the either rise of freelance workers or entrepreneurial workers or the decline in involuntary, you know, we can talk about whether it's historical numbers, but, but many people who are working uh, involuntarily uh, part-time who would like full-time work, a significant numbers. Um, if, if there's a higher group of, of folks, does that put pressure on uh, overall, does that hold down wages at some level uh, because they don't have the same bargaining power as a full-time worker and if more of them are available, they're getting more money if you just work more hours, but you don't have the same bargaining power in order to push for a higher per hour wage on a, say, I'm just curious, I'm thinking about that and then you know, there, there's a whole argument within this space where are, if benefits, are benefits becoming a higher percentage of the package for a full-time worker? Some, you know, Fox News will argue that regularly in terms of the ACA, but just in thinking about other benefits, uh, you know, is, if ben are benefits a higher percentage of the overall cost relative to pay, and is that a disincentive for companies to, uh, to hire more full-time workers? So, you know, if there are a lot of involuntary part-time workers, that's all part of softness in the labor market. And the softer labor market, the less bargaining power workers have yep. to demand more wages. You know, statistics a year or two old from the BLS, the average, average pay for part-time workers is 10.92 an hour, uh, almost 11 an hour, whereas for full-time workers, it's slightly more than $17 an hour. So it's a 57% difference. The benefits of part-time workers, the whole package is about $2.02. For full-time workers, it's about two and a half times more, about $5. 21% of part-time work, only 21% of part-time workers have, are in employer-backed retirement plans, either pen, regular pen, defined benefit or defined contributions, 401ks or regular pensions, whereas it's 65% for full-timers. And you know, generally, despite what Fox says, you know, the ACA is reducing the, burden, the cost burden for down. employers for health insurance. And generally, there's been this big shift by employers to reduce the cost of, you know, retirement. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're trying to force workers to take, you know, have fewer, fewer sick days and fewer vacation mm -hmm. days. You know, employers are trying very, 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 very hard, you know, to get away with as much as they can in terms of reducing so-called fringe benefit costs. No, that's very well done. But I think if you, what are the three big categories? Right? Healthcare costs. Healthcare costs are, are we still having an issue there, but they're stabilizing. They're actually coming down a bit. But the coverage is not expanding uh, in retirement; it's shrinking. 
uh, employers are moving away from that. Those are two big bundles of employer costs. The, uh, and then all the benefit stuff, part-time workers don't, aren't entitled to a lot of uh, uh, benefits in the first place. So, I, I mean, I, my sympathy for the employers is that particularly for a lot of the small ones, they are in this dog-eat-dog business. I, and I guess that I would think the pay gap between part and full-time, I bet if you looked at what sectors they're in, that might explain a lot of it. The part-time workers uh, are heavily concentrated in very low-paying sectors, which depressingly, the jobs that we've created since the Great Recession are low-paying. What comes to mind if, uh, if you think there's anything that could help move the needle? At any level of government, uh, what level of policy could be helpful, or from a practice standpoint, or from an organizing standpoint, where would be the greatest uh, effort, where, where should the greatest societal effort be put? We did a report a couple weeks ago that 42% of America's workforce makes less than $15 an hour, and which is just a stunning number. And What's that number again? 42%. 42%. And so I actually think one of, I mean, this is not that innovative, but you know, one of the key ways that we've raised wages in this country is by raising the wage floor. And we have a wage floor that has so far eroded in real value, it's really contributing to the fact that wages have stagnated or declined and really has contributed to this widening gap between you know, the very wealthy and everybody else. And so I think, and uh, we were talking about that, you know, like this stealth you know, taking away the ability of localities to pass higher wages that will impact millions of workers in this country, I think is something that we have to organize and fight against. And we've already lost the battle in places that you wouldn't even know about, like Rhode Island, and you know, it's just happening. Um, I also, if we could figure out a way to enforce a lot of the laws that are on the books now, and that's one of, one of the real losses we have in unions isn't just a wage thing. There's not yep. an active, organized presence in the workplace right. that can call out violations of, of basic laws. Uh, maybe, uh, I'm too old for it, but there are a lot of smart younger people in the room. Figure out some way to mobilize this technology that's being used for scheduling. Is there some way you could report a state, I'm blue sky now, a state labor agency say, hey, send us your uh, violations, you know, give us a tech app. There's, in the criminal justice world now, there's an app called I'm Getting Arrested, where you just push a button, and if you do it, it takes a, a, a video of what's happening to you, and it uploads it immediately to the cloud, so even if the police break your phone up, uh, there's a record of it. I don't. Maybe there's something like that you could do um, on the labor side, if there was a state agency that'd be willing to enforce this stuff. And again, I do think it's going to be states and cities. Washington is totally deadlocked or kind of backpedaling on a lot of this stuff. There's lots of great ideas out there uh, that... Uh, Ideas about kind of worker trust funds to do things, community bargaining authorities, uh, expand joint uh, the joint legal liability off the supply chain so you can get at the people who are really running these subcontractors. There's a lot of rich ideas. I think, again, for me, it's, it's going to be cities innovating if their state governments don't stop them. And I think really you can't emphasize that point out. A lot of states are trying to stop this. So, uh, you know, the American Legislative Exchange Council, a corporate that group, you know, Koch brothers and others. So, you know, they're the ones behind these efforts in Florida and Rhode Island and other places to prevent counties and cities from passing paid sick days laws. Mm -hmm. And then Wisconsin has passed too, mm -hmm. and, and, and local uh, minimum, minimum wage laws. All right, you know, the Fight for 15, again, when it started in November 2012 with 200 workers, you know, we never thought it would begin to achieve what it's achieved. You know, no, it hasn't gotten $15 for fast food workers, but it really has changed the national conversation. Yeah. And whoever thought, you know, 26, 28, 30 months ago that we'd see, you know, San Francisco and, and Seattle and LA at $15, mm -hmm. Chicago at $13. Mm -hmm. um, 
and many, many other cities will, I suspect, soon be increasing the minimum wages. So, you know, a lot of people said five for 15 was silly. The SAU was crazy to be spending millions of dollars on it, but it's, it's really changed the conversation. And one of the crazy things in America is you poll on the minimum wage and 80% of people support high minimum wage, 80% of people support uh, paid sick days laws. But, you know, the power of big money in politics just so sways things that politicians don't want to defy business. And there really is kind of paralysis at the federal level. And until we fix our election situation, our campaign finance situation, which will be extremely, extremely difficult, uh, it's going to be very, very hard to get real pro-worker legislation at the or should I say pro-associate, no, pro-worker <laughs> legislation at the, at the federal level. And that's why you know, the, the cities and states have become the laboratories of experimentation. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. We want to hear your job stories too. Send them to us on Facebook or on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Thanks to New America NYC for sharing that audio with us. To hear the full-length panel discussion, visit newamericanyc.org or our website, radioproject.org. That's also where you can get our podcast, download past shows, and make a difference by supporting our work. I'm Laura Flynn. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.